Hi, here's Natalia, and you're listening to another episode of Upskill Me podcast. Today, we're going to continue the conversation about fluency. This is part two, and this is another special episode for non-native speakers who use English as their business language. We need to negotiate, sell, present, convince people, win clients, and win their audiences in the English language. If you already speak good English, but you need the level of uncompromising fluency, you want to reach the level of absolute freedom of expressing yourself in the second language, which is English in our case, keep listening. We already spoke about fluency in another episode last week, and last week I also went live to show non-native speakers on my screen actually, with all the screenshots and I did it in real time, I showed you a few examples of how you can use self-correction algorithms to improve the way you think in the English language. And when I say improve, I should probably rather say edit, the way you edit the way you think. Most non-native speakers compare the new language to the cognitive system that they already have in their mind, which is they compare the new language, the system of the new language to the system of the language they already know. If this is your first Uh, foreign language, you compare it with your mother tongue. If this is your second foreign language, most likely you you will compare it to the system of the first foreign language. So when I was learning German, which was my second foreign language, I would always compare it to English. And it was inconvenient for me to compare it to Russian. Simply because German and English are way more alike. Even though German grammar reminds me of Russian grammar a little bit. Anyway, my point is when we're working on fluency as non-native speakers, we do not care about academic levels. At least I do not care about academic levels because they make absolutely no sense when it comes to business. And no one in business requires a certificate from a language school in order to deal with you. You can have an idea of what your level of English is based on the academic certificates and based on the academic terms such as intermediate, pre-intermediate, advanced, uh, proficient, whatever. But unfortunately, in real life, I regularly see people with certificates of advanced English or even proficient English who are desperately hopeless when it comes to sales, who cannot explain the idea of their startup to the world, who cannot communicate with international teams, let alone manage international teams. So imagine managing an international team where everyone comes from different cultural backgrounds, where where people's religious background is different, where some people are not religious at all, where people grew up watching completely different movies when they were kids, where people are motivated in their own ways, and where people think in absolutely different ways. Imagine motivating and managing and um, leading such a team. And then imagine reporting your ideas, your best practices, your best practices and your performance KPIs to the team of the top managers or to the board of directors. They can be also quite international, but most likely they will be all English speaking individuals if we speak about international teams and international companies. So people who work in the English speaking environment, people who use English for business always face this two problems. On the one hand, they have to manage an international team 
and they need to find ways to motivate all those people whose whose first language is is not English, but they all communicate in English. And on the other hand, they have to report um, to their bosses in English, to the top, top bosses. So on the one hand, they're the boss, and on the other hand, they have to report to their bosses. And there are a lot of communication conflicts around that, and there is a lot of communication frustration around that. Most businesses today are so international, and it's a real challenge to devise a communication strategy that will fit everyone. And even though I call myself a communication strategist and I've been teaching communication for so many years, I absolutely do not believe there is one communication strategy that fits everyone in one organization, or especially a communication strategy that fits every organization. If we keep in mind that almost everyone today in big international companies is an immigrant, if we keep in mind that 80% 80% of the most prominent startup founders are immigrants and non-native speakers. If we keep in mind the fact of how many mixed marriages we have today, of how easily people move around the world today, and if we keep in mind that everybody today learns English because that's the language of business and that's the language of communication around the world, Uh, we will quickly understand that there is no such way as a universal strategy, universal communication strategy for everyone. It's way more important to understand people on a deeper level and to understand how your particular team functions and what particular people are in your team. So I think I set the scene for this episode. We're talking about fluency in this kind of business environment where everyone comes from different parts of the world and we still need to maintain very efficient communication and we need to live up to the very high standards of communication in the international organization. What we want to do here is we want to express ourselves very clearly, especially when we speak to our teams and especially when we report to our bosses. Therefore, the two criteria of fluency that I'm going to speak about in this podcast are Number one, the ability to formulate your ideas clearly in the English language. And believe me, that's a tedious task for both non-native and native speakers. That's not so easy. And the second criterion is, is it even English? I like calling it this way because so many times non-native speakers come to me with their crazy ideas of how English language works. Their ideas of how the English language works. And most of the time, these ideas are incorrect. People say something and they think it means one thing, but in reality, it means a completely different thing. And it's very important to master a skill of correcting and editing your own thought process. How do you know that whatever you're saying is English? And it's, it should be English. It should not be the version of English that your uh, English teacher understands. It should not be the version of English that your colleagues understand, for whom English is also not the first language. It should be the version of English that native speakers understand, and they should have no problem understanding you. In the first part of 
this series of episodes, we spoke about measuring how much you hear in the English language. And we, and we also looked at how much you actually understand. If you want to learn to do that, you can go to the previous episode and do the exercises which are inside the podcast. The idea that I want to plant in your head with these two episodes is that fluency is absolutely measurable. It's a measurable skill. But you should know how to measure it. We do not measure water in centimeters, right? That would be insane and that would be crazy. We also do not measure the performance KPIs of our employees in liters, right? Or in, in any other weird metrics. We have certain metrics for everything. And we should not measure fluency uh, in abstract feelings of euphoria or abstract feelings of oh that's great I, I feel great or that feels easy it's impossible to measure it that way and unfortunately many non-native speakers are not used to the idea of actually measuring fluency this idea has never been introduced in in the system of learning a language or in the system of teaching a language everybody wants to attain the level of fluency but very few people actually know how to get there what it means and how to measure their own progress i developed these four criteria to help non-native speakers become more confident on their journey and to continuously measure their own progress the problem that i see very often is that non-native speakers and actually all people like comparing themselves to other people for example if you are working on a course you have no idea what other people are doing other people who are taking the same course still every day i receive messages such as oh i'm afraid i'm i'm, I'm slower than everyone else and I'm like, how do you know how everyone else is doing? You do not see each other. You do not see each other's progress. You have no idea what lessons other people are doing at the moment. And you have no idea how far they have come. People make these weird assumptions without actually having the facts about other people. They guess a lot. And I want to teach them to compare themselves only with themselves. But it, it's, a, it's a cliche that everybody uses, but um, very few people, again, actually know how to do that. Numbers with numbers, right? That's more accurate than comparing feelings, um, than comparing how you feel about yourself with how other people feel about themselves. That that would be inaccurate comparison, absolutely. So I developed a system when you, where you can look at the numbers, at the exact numbers, and you can look at the numbers. So if you want to measure how much you hear in exact percentage, go check out the previous episode. Today we're going to speak about how you formulate and how you check if the way you think is English. There is also a detailed blog post about it. However, it's in the Russian language. So if you understand Russian, go check out the blog post where I describe the two exercises that you can do to measure your fluency <clears throat> according to these two criteria. And you will also find a link to the live video, which is in English, where I walk you through two very simple very, very simple instruments on how you can edit your thought process in the English language. They are Scal and Google.
So exercise number one is, let's try to formulate something. When I work with sales teams and when I work with startups, I ask them to formulate their ideas very clearly all the time and every time it's a disaster. Um, If we work with teams, it all starts with formulating very clearly what is sales, what is a client, what is discipline, what is performance, what does it mean to take action, what does it mean to give feedback. All these simple, seemingly simple concepts that you think everybody knows, but when you actually listen to how people define those, you get crazy. Because, for example, for many people, discipline means doing something they don't like doing at all, but they have to do it. It means forcing themselves to do something they don't like doing at all. How do you demand discipline from a team if a team's understanding of discipline is like this? It's very difficult. So it makes sense to work with a definition in their head first. And you can only look at their definition if they give it to you in written form or if they say it. If we work with non-native speakers, and if you are a non-native speaker, it makes sense to do this exercise in the written form. You have to write it down because when you write down your definition, and actually when you write, you have a very good chance to look at the way you think. Literally, you see the way you think. When we have spontaneous conversations with people, we don't have time for that. We have little time and we have to reply right away. We, there is absolutely no chance to edit our thought process. We can only edit what we already said. But a thought always comes first. First we think and then we produce words in any language. When we write... We have a chance to look at what we've written, edit it, cross out unnecessary words, come back, add it again, and we can use as much time as necessary to complete this task. When we speak, we're always limited in time. So, exercise number one, you need a pen and paper. Sit down right now and write down your definition of friendship. Let's start with this word. I'm going to give you two options, actually. You can write the definition of friendship or you can do both as well. You can write the answer to the question, what professional accomplishments are you most proud of? I like this question because it's a typical question at many interviews, many job interviews, regardless of the position. It can be a senior position. It can be a middle management position. It can be a very junior position as well. Uh, But recruiters and HR managers and your potential bosses as well like listening to how you respond to that question and how you formulate your professional accomplishments. So write down the answer to this question. You can even pause the podcast right now and sit down to write it. That is step one. Step two, after you have written down your definition, and when you write it, don't think about anything. Just put whatever you have on your mind on paper. Remember that the first draft is always going to be long, messy, and most probably you're not going to like it. But it's important to put it out there. So step two, after you have written it down, look at it and then read it out loud. It's a very important exercise that so many people ignore, but I'm telling you, you shouldn't. When you read your, your own text out loud, you instantly notice things that you didn't actually mean to say. You will probably notice some grammatical 
mistakes, you will notice the inconsistencies, you will hear the prepositions and words that do not need to be there. You will hear if your sentences are maybe too long and you want to break them down in two because they don't make sense. You will hear a lot of things. Just try. Try it out and whatever needs to be edited, edit it on paper if you hear it. Step number three is you count the number of words in your definition. And now you know how many words it took you to come up with this definition of friendship. Step number four. Now you need to correct and to edit your definition so that it sounds more English. What you do is you find a lot of good examples. And this is what I tell non-native speakers all the time. If you want to learn to express your ideas and formulate your ideas very clearly in English, you do not look for clear definitions and wonderful ideas in English in your head. You can spend hours thinking about it and thinking how to formulate it best, but these ideas are not there. Stop looking for them in your head. You simply don't have that much experience reading in English all kinds of different media. You do not listen to so much content in English. You do not communicate with so many people in English. You do not have that... The cognitive system that you have in English is not strong enough and you do not know enough words, like that many words. You do not know so many words and word combinations that native speakers might know. So these ideas will not be in your head. And I'm not talking about the content. I'm talking about the ways to formulate the, your content. I'm talking about the ways to mold your ideas into something precise, simple, clear, um, beautiful. So my suggestion is that you go and you Google what is friendship or you look for ways um, how people answer the question what are your professional accomplishments? How do other people answer this question? And you might you might send a general request to Google or you might, if you're talking about something more specific, such as increasing sales or increasing, or you talk about marketing performance, you probably want to Google how people describe their achievements in sales and marketing. What language do they use for that? Again, listen carefully. You do not look at the content. You do not copy someone's content. That's not what we want to do, right? Your content is unique to you because this is your experience, especially when it comes to our achievements. Friendship is pretty much um, a universal concept and everybody thinks the same. Everybody feels, I would say, everybody feels the same way about it. But it's when we talk about professional accomplishments, do not copy somebody else's thoughts. But look at the language elements that people use to describe and express the same ideas that you have. You will find a lot of unexpected word combinations and things like, oh my god, I didn't know you could put it this way. And I would have never translated it th this way. But you will find someone say it and it would feel easy. It would feel simple and it you would go like, oh, I, I understand what the person means 100%, but I would, I would never be able to express myself this way if I were looking for these word combinations in my head. They are not there. You need to surround yourself with multiple great examples of how the language is being used 
in certain contexts, right? So right now we're working with a very narrow definition of professional success, not a definition, I would say with a narrow concept of professional success. So we're looking at the language elements of the vocabulary that is being used to describe um, certain achievements and to formulate um, success, professional success and um, maybe the language of a, of a job interview, maybe the language of a, of a resume. This is what we're looking at right now. These examples will not be in your head. It's impossible, nearly impossible. So you look at at least five different credible sources. And when I say credible, it means they were written by native speakers. Um, and if after you have found five, look at the language elements that you want to borrow and look at your text again, look at your original draft again and see if you want to edit something, if you want to replace certain word combinations with the new word combinations you have found. Maybe you will find um, ideas that will give way to your ideas. If you look at the blog post that I'm referring to, I share a video example that led me to my own thought, thought process. This, this video helped me formulate my ideas a lot better. So you will find something that will help you think in a certain direction, or you will most probably find interesting word combinations and um, examples of how to use the language to express exactly this idea. So you need to do some search. Okay, after you have edited your initial draft with the word combinations that you have found, count the words again and compare the word count that you had in the beginning with a new word count. If you manage to express your thoughts, if you manage to define friendship or your professional accomplishments in fewer words, congratulations, you did great. If you had to use more words, but the definition is also now more complete, more precise, and it's easier to understand, you also did a good job. Ultimately, you want to arrive at a skill where you are able to express great meaning with few words, as few words as possible, so that people understand you the first time they hear you say something. And you want to remove all the empty words that mean nothing, that do not add any weight to your speech, especially in writing. Well, that's it. That was the first exercise. Uh, I hope that makes sense. And I hope you practice formulating your ideas, starting from today. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm going to also explain to you the second exercise. It's not so easy to explain in a podcast, but uh, if you go to the blog post that I'm referring to, you will see the example of a tag, of the text that I'm working with. And I'm using the example from my online course, Confident Business Writing for Non-Native Speakers. That is a text produced by one of my students and we're looking at certain parts of the text that I have doubts about. To give you a few examples, what we're working with here is we're checking the word combinations. Do they exist in English or do they not? I know for sure that I can say a way to win my heart because the topic of the task is here, write five ways to win your heart. Write about, write about five ways to win your heart. And a way to, my, to win my heart is definitely correct. But then a person uses here different synonyms. A shortcut to my heart, an approach to my heart, a way to my heart, and a pathway to my heart. Are they correct? Are they English or are they not? 
So the job here is to find if it's correct. And I'm introducing two very simple and free instruments that you can use to edit your thought process. They're Google and Scale. The Scale's URL is quite long and um, weird. It goes like this, scale.sketchengine.co.uk. It's a tool that searches for available word combinations across the web and it aggregates them from credible resources such as Daily Telegraph, uh, New York Times, etc., Forbes, etc., etc. So everything it finds, you can be certain that it's 100% correct. So the first thing that you do in order to check your idea, for example, a, po a pathway to my heart, is it correct or not correct? You Google it and you look at the results. If you find enough results, well, enough for me is more than five. More than five results in credible sources written by native speakers, then this is correct. Again, the only question you want to ask yourself is, have I heard a native speaker say so? Have I seen a native speaker write so? If you can't answer yes to this question, you go online and you you find your answer. So, for example, on Google. And if you want to check the context and how exactly the word combination is used and if it's correct because you know google is not that reliable because it indexes everything and someone whose first language is spanish and someone who's trying to learn english can post something in their twitter account it doesn't mean that this is correct even though they tweeted in english right so you want to be more careful however when you post it in scale you immediately see if it's correct or incorrect and you can it gives you scale gives you sentences and you can check the context and you can learn so much from the context in those sentences so we learn from googling it and from putting it from running it through, through scale that a pathway to my heart is correct but the context is quite unique it's more romantic and it kind of means the only pathway to my heart. However, a person talks here about five ways. And I don't think pathway is a good way here. Is is a correct um, word here. Another example we're looking at here is, for example, people with light character. Is it correct or is it not correct? Is it English or not? That can be your homework. You can Google it and see if it's correct. I know what a person wants to say, but um, I'm not sure this is English. I've never heard a native speaker say so. Such people are my favorites. Is this correct? Is it English or not? We clearly understand what a person wants to say, but if I think about favorites and if I Google it and if I run it through scale, I can immediately see that it's used in the context of the favorites folder, right? So I have a I have a folder with my favorite pictures and I called it and I call it the favorites, my favorites. I can add a person to my favorites list. I can remove a picture from my favorites list. But it's never used in a context. People like this are my favorites. You would rather say people like this are my favorite people. However, sometimes it makes sense to completely change the structure of your sentence to make it sound more English. Because I didn't think that a person wanted to say... People with my with light character are my favorite people. We we kind of understand what a person means, but it doesn't sound so smooth enough, and it doesn't sound like really English. 
I think what a person wanted to say was, I enjoy being around easygoing people with a positive attitude to life. That sounds way more English to me, and that's just, that is pretty much what a person wanted to say. And another one was a movie geek. That is an interesting example. So a person is describing five ways to win his heart, and it's a guy, so he's talking about a girl. And he says, um, another way to win my heart is to be a movie geek. And he thinks that a movie geek is someone who enjoys watching movies. However, if we Google movie geek, it leads us to the Urban Dictionary where we read that a movie geek is someone who doesn't leave when the movie credits start to show respect and admiration to all those involved in the process. More importantly, not to miss a possible bonus scene, etc. And the example goes like this. Jeff is such a movie geek because he wanted to see who the key grip was. So a movie geek is not someone who simply enjoys watching movies. It's a person who has seen the same movie more than 50 times, who has watched all the backstage scenes, who knows the names of all the actors, their family, who uh, knows the names of their dogs, who probably watched all the interviews with the actors. So someone who really, really enjoys every additional bonus scene, every detail about a movie, and who knows a lot about a certain movie. And I think in this case, the person didn't really mean that he wants to find a girl who is a movie geek. I think what a person wants to, to say is, I would like to meet someone who enjoys watching a great movie as much as I do. That sounds more English and that sounds more correct. So sometimes when you want to use idioms or set expressions um, in English, or buzzwords, or cliches, it's not always a good idea, because if you're able to explain buzzwords and cliches in very simple words, that, that is what people are going to love you for, because buzzwords and cliches, there's so much overuse that they stop meaning a lot, <laughs> and when you're able to formulate your ideas in simple language, you're practicing the first skill, you're practicing the skill of formulating your ideas clearly in a foreign language. So that would be it about the examples. You want to go check out the blog post to see exactly what I mean, but remember to check every idea that you have in English. If you have never heard a native speaker say so, always check your idea. That's the message that I wanted to send to you today. Remember that fluency is measurable. Remember that you want to measure how much you hear when people speak to you, how much you understand when you hear to someone speak English. It might be a video, it might be a conference call, it might be a sales meeting, or it might be a conversation over lunch. Remember that you want to measure your ability to formulate your ideas very clearly in the English language, because that's a way to be understood, a way to gain respect and credibility, especially in business environments. And you want to constantly edit the way you think to make sure that the way you express yourself is English. It's not a version of English that your English teacher understands. It's English. <laughs> and if you want to check out more tools on how to do that, you can read the blog post that I'm referring to, or you can join my online courses where I share over a dozen of different tools with clear video instructions, how you can check your ideas, how you can edit your ideas, and how you can think in English so that you write better, you communicate more clearly, and you speak more freely in the second language. Because that's a way to open up so many opportunities in life. 
English is not just a language, it's opportunities. So go get them. Thank you for listening. This was Natalia and I'll see you in the next episode.